such a traumatic accident. You know, there 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 aren't very many uh, minor uh, water strike accidents. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show by Helicopter Aircrew for Helicopter Aircrew. Each week, we'll be exploring the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them and industry experts. Check out the latest on the blog at rotarywingshow.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day, helicopter fans, and welcome back to Episode 2 of the Rotary Wing Show from wherever in the world you're joining us from. This has been recorded in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, Australia, and I'm pretty stoked today because I've just been up in a, a 205, so essentially a, a Bell 212, a single engine modification, and very similar to the, the Hueys or the Iroquois I used to fly uh, back in the Army. So it's been about nine years since I've been in that type of platform, and it was an absolute blast to get in something a little bit larger again with a, a bucket load of power and just go through that and sort of have everything come back and and be able to cruise around and do that again instead of being in something like a, an R22. So I'm on a real high and had a really buzz today. And uh, I just want to yeah share that, and, and I'm just really excited again, uh, more so than I've been in, in ages. It's uh, had been a really good day. But uh, for you guys, look, in today's show, we're going to hear from the Mr. Robert Nefist. And Bob is a president of Utilities Aviation Specialists. We're going to be talking about helicopter wire strikes and how you might be more aware of wires and the dangers they pose to us as helicopter operators. If you've been flying for any length of time, then I think it's fair to say you know at least one wire strike incident in your area or someone that you know or an organization that you've worked for has had one. Wire strikes are one of the, the leading causes of helicopter accidents worldwide. And there's more and more wires and obstacles going up every year and that's unlikely to change anytime soon. And because so much of our helicopter operations are at low levels, this is something we really need to be super vigilant about. In fact, when I first sat down to brainstorm different topics for the show, wire strikes was right up there in one of the, the top things that I wanted to try and get covered. And normally when a helicopter and a strand of wire meet, it's at speed and it's pretty violent. In one Australian study, 59% of the helicopters that had hit a wire were destroyed. And as Bob talks about in the interview uh, shortly, 60% of wire strikes result in a fatality. If you go into the show notes on the website at rotarywingshow.com and look out for episode two, you'll find several links and a couple of PDFs there of FAA and ATSB reports into wire strikes that you can download or read online that cover a bunch of statistics and it's pretty sobering stuff. When I went looking for someone to get on the show and talk about wire strikes, the name that kept coming up in, in different forums was Bob Fierce and his course flying in the wire environment. Bob's resume and experience is actually pretty ridiculously long. It reads like a, a who's who of different aviation organizations and achievements. And again, I'll link to one version of it in the show notes. But as a very light coverage of it to set up the interview, uh, here we go. So he's got almost four decades of aviation experience on both fixed wing and rotary aircraft, and 31 years of which have been operating in the gas and electric industry. Bob's been involved with numerous utilities worldwide uh, and consulting on issues concerning helicopter, uh, power line operations, transmission systems reliability management, as well as wire and obstacle marking, accident investigation, and litigation support. Spent six years as the chairman of the Utilities Patrol and Construction Committee as part of the HAI, and he trains 
NTSB and FAA instructors in rotorcraft accident investigations. He's got a whole bunch of US Department of Transport certifications, and he's trained over 28,000 crew members around the world through his different courses that he runs. Bob's currently working with the FAA, Federal Communications Commission, Transport Canada, the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway, US Homeland Security, and a bunch of utility industries in different countries. And that's not even close to half of it. So I think we've got the right guy to talk to. And as we catch up with Bob, he's just at the end of a very long day having flown into Australia before starting a roadshow of a number of seminars around the country. Probably every helicopter pilot I know knows someone who's or, or knows of a, an accident uh, with a helicopter and a wire strike. And off the top of my head, you know, I can know of a, a Chinook that's been destroyed, uh, squirrels, uh, a Kiowa, uh, and a Blackhawk that's had a uh, wire strike. Luckily, that was just a pretty minor uh, incident. But it seems such a, a huge accident um, risk out there for helicopters. Has there any statistics or, you know, what's, what's your view on, on helicopter strikes uh, with, with wires? Well, yeah, there are a lot of statistics uh, in the U.S. and Canada in particular. We've been keeping statistics for a very, very long time. Uh, it still is the FAA points out that wire strikes are their number one problem for rotorcraft in the civil helicopter industry. But I think what's more important is the near misses that aren't don't end up being wire strikes uh, because of our particular company and being kind of the gurus in that area, utilities aviation specialists that is, we hear about near misses from all the operators and all the power companies and uh, just about all the, everybody in the industry will hear about it within usually less than 24 hours, sometimes an hour or two after a near miss. And the near misses, uh, of course, the accidents don't really establish the potential for the problem. You have to look at the accidents, but the near misses are, are the big ones. And we have near misses just uh, all the time out there. It, it's a huge problem. And the FAA has come out and said that it is the civil helicopter industry's number one problem for rotorcraft in the United States. It And with my experience in wire and obstruction strike type accidents worldwide it may not be number one everywhere else in the globe but it's way up there as being one of the leading causes of accidents and it's it's such a traumatic accident you know there 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 aren't very many uh, minor uh, wire strike accidents the, the statistics that we've collected show that 60 percent of the time a wire strike is going to produce a fatality now that's a pretty staggering number when you look at fatalities for other for other types of accidents. For just one type of accident, a wire strike, sixty uh, percent of the time it produces a fatality. That's a uh, rather telling number. Especially, I guess, when you combine that lethality with the the number of incidents uh, that happens, as you said, has been pointed out, probably the one probably the biggest accident um, cause for helicopters. You talk about, and, and I guess your course is called Flying in the Wire Environment. What would you consider the wire environment? So what are you talking about there? Well, one of the courses we teach is Flying in the Wire Environment. We we have 11 different courses. Uh, uh, flying in the Wire Environment uh, is one of the courses that 
deals with operating down in not just the wire environment, but the obstruction environment as well. And you ask an interesting question as to where it is. You, you really can't answer that in one sentence. Uh, it, it all depends on the terrain that you're over and where you are locally. We've had wire strikes at 3,000 feet above the ground. So you have to know the environment that you're operating in. In mountainous terrain, it's one place. In flat terrain, it's another. It depends on the locale of the, of the area. For example, in industrial areas, it, it tends to be higher than it is in rural areas. Uh, so I, there, there's quite a bit in defining where the wire environment is. And we get into that in, in a great deal of detail initially in the course before we can even start talking about what to do and what not to do with respect to avoidance in the environment. And that's perfect because that's going to lead into my next question is if someone's listening, you know, obviously associate uh, power line operations, uh, maybe some spraying operations and things like that with being close to wires. But if someone's at home listening and they're a charter pilot or they're a, a flying instructor um, or maybe they're doing passenger transfers from point A to point B and they're kind of thinking, okay, well, wire training is not so important for me, um, what you're saying is, look, we're all exposed. Yeah, anybody who operates, unless you're flying at flight level 390 or unless you're way up out of, you know, there's, there's really four realms of flight uh, on this planet. Well, there's actually six, but the two are subsets of the four main ones. There's the exosphere, the troposphere, the uh, uh, GA environment, and then you've got the obstruction environment. Now, uh, we operate in the, anybody who operates in the obstruction environment which in mountainous area can be anywhere below the ridge tops. Every doesn't make anything. It doesn't make it uh, hauling passengers on a sightseeing mission. If you're in that environment, you need to understand the tenets of that environment because it'll get you. It's just laying there waiting for you. And uh, it is uh, a very, very unforgiving environment. Bob, the, the wire strikes I know of were all known wires. Um, they weren't sort of ones that people were surprised, or not afterwards, they weren't surprised by that. People knew those wires were there. Is that a pretty common scenario? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, 40%. Now, these are the people we can interview after the accident, keep in mind. But 40% of the pilots and crews who hit wires knew it was there. Now, that's almost half. And there again, that's very telling. You, you know, uh, the first question is, well, why would somebody hit a wire that they knew was there? Therein lies the whole complexity of the system. What would cause an experienced, highly experienced pilot? And because, by the way, most of the time these wire strikes are not indicative of an inexperienced pilot. A very, very large percentage of the time, the pilots are highly experienced, highly seasoned, they average about 52 to 55 years old, not inexperienced people in the industry. The biggest piece of the pie, if you look at graphically on a chart, uh, if, if we just look at flight hours alone, uh, the pilots who have wire streaks, the biggest piece of the pie are between 2,000 and 5,000 hours. That's the biggest lot of pilots, hour-wise, that have wire strikes. The second biggest piece of the pie, which is nearly as big as the first one, that is pilots that have wire strikes, have over 10,000 hours. So it's not a rookie mistake. Now the question comes in, how does a highly experienced, highly seasoned pilot like that with five or 10,000 hours 
hit a wire that he knew was there, oftentimes saw just seconds before he hit it. Therein lies the science of operating in the environment. One of the reasons that wire strikes are such a common accident is pilots just don't really understand the way they should that this environment is very, very unforgiving and there's a science to operating down there. There is some definite tenets that you have to understand. And if you don't, you're operating on luck. And it really doesn't make any difference whether you have 100 hours or they have 10,000 hours. And I'm guessing that the course of the training you're doing and even the operational protections we have in place is a, a layered system. So at the very last step, I guess you have all the wire strike protection equipment um, that you might have on the aircraft. And that's going to be the, the last ditch effort. And the whole idea of the training and, and operational protection would be stepping back from that and trying to have as many sort of protections and barriers in place before that. Is that kind of the approach you have with the training? Well, we don't talk a lot about the protections. They normally do come up, but keep in mind protections are only a fail-safe. Uh, at least in our environment, they are. The wire strike protection systems and whatnot, uh, they, they do. Uh, I mean, I had 11 helicopters. I had WSPS on every aircraft that I had. I believe that they were worth the investment. Will they, will they save you 100% of the time? No. No, they won't. There are some pretty good statistics. Uh, the Canadians have a lot of good statistics, the armed forces there, on the effectiveness of the wire strike protection systems. So they're, they're definitely worthwhile, but they're only a fail-safe. They're no, you know, it's not something you want to put on and just say, okay, I'm good, and, and not understand the environment. The other systems that are out there, uh, they are pretty sketchy as to their effectiveness. Now, some of them, the laser-based systems and whatnot, they, the data that I have seen, they work pretty well. But here's the issue with those. The cost on some of those systems are more than some of these helicopters that are flying these missions out there. So they'll never make it into the mainstream working-class helicopter out there. You're not going to put a, uh, a $250,000 or a $500,000 laser system on uh, an R-22 or an R-44. So they'll just never make it. Secondly, a lot of the, that is they'll never make it into the, uh, the arena that we fly in. The second part of that is a lot of the jobs that we do down low level, like power line patrol and helicopter construction, we are knowingly and purposefully near wires all the time. So the systems really would be kind of useless there because they'd be in a constant state of alarm. And the first thing pilots would do is reach down to that toggle switch and, and shut it cancel off. It. So it's all back on us initially then to, to make sure we know what we're doing. Often through training, you know, you're told a couple of the basic things. So, you know, if you're operating a new area, go and do a recce, mark the wires on your map. Cross wires over the tops of poles, all roads have wires, and you know then the, the the cover rule, which is don't hit wires. That's obviously a, a pretty thin layer, but that's probably what most pilots hit the street and hit, and hit their their first couple of jobs knowing about. What are some of the things we can do to increase our, our chances of, I guess, see? And I guess it's a step process. You've got to see the wire first, and then you've got to um, you've got to react from there. So, how can we be better pilots as far as avoiding wire strikes? Well. <clears throat> You know, in 
a couple of the courses that we have, one of them is the low-level CRM course, which is uh, operating as a crew low-level. And in the long version, the part one and two of the wire uh, strike avoidance or the obstruction environment, we talk about the, the three fatal assumptions. You know, a lot of these courses, at the end of the course, they'll put up a PowerPoint slide. It's got 32 bullets on it. It says, okay, here's what I want you to remember. And it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and nobody wants to be there anyway. And you talk about death by PowerPoint. That's it. Uh, so we don't do that. We look at the three in the... 35 years that we've been looking and studying wire strikes, our group, we look at the top three fatal assumptions that we as pilots make down there. The first one, Dr. Warren DeHaan, who's probably the world's foremost visibility science, talks at length about in uh, our training courses and others. Uh, he's the FAA's head of the vision committee. But the first fatal assumption is that we, pilots, are notorious. We are notorious for believing that we are going to be able to see wire in time when flying down at wire level. And you can never count on it. You can never count on it. So that is a mindset that a lot of us have that we just need to get out of our head. Wire has to be considered an invisible hazard because it isn't consistently visible. It can be there one moment and gone the next. Okay, so that's a, the first uh, assumption. The other two, yeah. I think? The second one is when you're operating with a crew, uh, and it's one of the biggest tenets, you don't ever, ever, you know, uh, wire strike avoidance is a crew responsibility when you're operating with a crew. And a very large percentage of the helicopter operations low level have a crew. Now, the issue is that crew member, that other crew member, is usually not a pilot. And the second biggest assumption is to uh, never, ever assume you and the pilot are seeing the same thing. We had a near miss just a week ago in British Columbia where five uh, fellows were in an aircraft and just about ran into a static wire. And three of the crew members saw the wire and... Assume that the pilot did too. You can't ever, ever assume that you and the pilot are seeing the same thing. And, of course, the third fatal assumption is assuming that the airspace is protected by marking and lighting. Now, yours is a little different in Australia than ours. We have to mark anything that is over 200 feet. I believe it's a little higher than that in Australia. But still, a lot of us have the the uh, misconception that anything above whatever that regulation regulated height is is going to be litter marked, and you just can't count on that. Okay, can we talk quickly about um, illusions then? So if we go back, that first thing is that the fact that the assumption is that um, we think we'll see the uh, see the wire. Is there a couple of key illusions that we can be aware of and, uh, I guess, keep an eye out on? Well, there, there are a number of illusions. Uh, and again, uh, we have a whole section on illusions. That's a study in and of itself. There's about six different illusions that get us into trouble when we're down low level. The high wire illusion is one uh, that crop dusters uh, get into a lot of times. When you are looking at two wires that are running parallel to each other that are in fairly close proximity to each other, when you're looking at it from, oh, let's say 200 yards away or more, the highest wire or the the the, uh, the highest wire will always appear to be the furthest away when in fact it may not be now as you approach it 
you will see which one is the highest. But if you're on a takeoff, if you're committed to a takeoff profile uh, and you plan for the wire to be the furthest and come to find out when you're rotating that it is actually the nearest to you, that could cause you quite a bit of consternation on the takeoff. And that's so, a perspective because it's it's higher up or further away now um, in the vision. That's a, a perspective yeah. type thing. Yes. Well, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, well, I guess you can call that. It's an illusion. We have the phantom line illusions, where wire running parallel to other parallel lines can actually become camouflaged. You've got the uh, uh, on, uh, when you're operating close to wire. You've got an illusion to where particularly stranded wire. Uh, stranded wire produces illusions just by the wire itself. Now, that's a study in and of itself as to why that happens. Now, the utility companies are very familiar with that. We call it being wire blind. But wire, a uh, uh, good rule of thumb is when you're operating anywhere near wire, close to wire, you can always count on it lying to you as to how close you are to the wire. And that has to do with your own individual physiology, your own eyes. It may be totally, you and I could be sitting in a cockpit together, and you may be seeing it totally different than I do. It has to do with the way individually you focus your eyes. And some people focus cross-eyed, some people focus laterally. And so you could be seeing it and thinking that it's 15 meters away, and I'm looking at it and think that it's 5 meters away. And that's, that's a peculiarity with stranded wire. And again, it's a study all in and of itself. Bob, the course you, and as you said, you run several different courses, uh, but the, the flying the wire uh, environment course, uh, is that something you guys run worldwide? So you, what's, your, what's your normal sort of yearly schedule? Are you, are you traveling internationally all the time or how do you sort of get around? Well, yeah, uh, I would say the answer to that is yes. We've got four of us who are actively doing the course now, and uh, we do do it internationally. And uh, I would say a large percentage of our time is spent, uh, first off, in the United States, obviously. Canada would be number two. Uh, Australia would be probably number three at this point. And uh, but we do it in other places as well. New Zealand, China. There is a, a, a real uh, upsurge in helicopter operations in China, and so that's going to be a huge market here down the road for just all sorts of helicopter aviation-related uh, infrastructure. So that's going to be a, a big market. And people who are listening to this uh, it could be anywhere in the world. So. Is there somewhere they can go to find out when upcoming courses are, are happening? Yeah, uh, we've got a website, and uh, that's just purely helicoptersafety.com. And we hold the courses uh, generically in some places. Like uh, here, we're just about to embark on a whole series of them in Australia. And then when I leave here, I'm going to New Zealand for another series of them. And that anyone uh, can sign up and come. In the U.S. and Canada, we don't usually do it that way because the demand base is differently there. In, in the U.S. and Canada, the companies will call us usually and have us come in and do the training for their group, the power companies, for example. You know, we have uh, about 2,800 power companies in uh, the United States, and there is a huge number in Canada as well. And so they'll call us to come in 
and train all their pilots and crews uh, for that specific company. The helicopter operators do the same thing. Now, we do do some generic courses where anybody can come, uh, just not as many as we do here in Australia. Uh, through the Helicopter Association International, first of all, which has their annual uh, Healy Expo, and then we're doing one here in uh, just a month or so, my, my month, maybe two, for the HAC, which is the Helicopter Association of Canada. And in those courses, people come from all walks of life, all different kinds of uh, operations, and they're generic as well. When I say generic, I mean they're not closed. Anybody can come to those. If you're listening to this, I'll try and get a link in the, in the show notes for the interview as well, but there's a, a fantastic video on the uh, the HAI site that goes about 25 minutes and talks about, I guess, the importance of and the background of why there there is such a, a focus on on wire training. Uh, and Bob, look, as we record this, it's it's late uh, July 2014, so I'm looking forward to catching up with you in Brisbane in about uh, two weeks and going through the course with yeah. you there. So uh, that should be, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that and uh, we're going to have a, a longer chat with you there. Well, that's great. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, video. Uh, we have that same video. It's called Surviving the Wire Environment. We have that on our website. We actually uh, participated in making that video along with uh, a number of other companies like Southern California Edison. And uh, the whole thing was, as you pointed out, a very, very well done video. Uh, it was made in Hollywood with a very, it was very expensive, half a million dollars or more to make that. And the guys who made it are the same guys who do 60 minutes. So thus that explains the quality of the video. But uh, what's an interesting fact about that video, even though our company was involved with making it as well as several others, uh, the NBAA, the HAI, Southern California Edison, and, and many more, the company who footed the bill for that, who paid for that, was actually Aegis, which is a Manhattan-based insurance company. And they don't insure aircraft. They don't insure one hull. They insure power companies. That's all they insure. And the reason that they spent that kind of money to make that video is because of the very high payouts every annually that they pay out for wire and obstruction strike accidents into the utility grid system. So there again. Another uh, very telling statistic, if you will, about the gravity of and, and the cost of this kind of an accident. Well, there you go. Okay, yeah, that really gives it extra context. But you're right, it's, it's a top-quality video, and I think anyone who's listening, anyone who's a helicopter pilot, should at least watch that at some stage just to have an appreciation uh, of, of what goes in and, uh, I guess, why looking at why is as important at all levels of experience. So. Bob, I'm sure you've had a very long day with all the travel. Uh, thank you so much for making the time to uh, chat with us. And as I said, I can't wait to catch up in a couple of weeks. Uh, looking forward to it. As Bob mentioned, to find out more information about the courses that he runs, and specifically the Flying in the Wire Environment course, head over to helicoptersafety.com. I'm doing the course shortly, so I'll report back in a future show about how that went and some of the things that I picked up from it. Next week's guest should also be at Bob's course in Brisbane. It will, again, be quite an interesting chat, I think, for most people to listen to. 
Richard Mars, or as most of us know him as Dickie, is a NVG check and training assessor. Dickie is going to be taking us through how NVGs work and the impact they're having on modern helicopter operations. NVGs, of course, being night vision goggles. This show couldn't happen without sponsorship, and this week's episode is sponsored by the website trainmorepilots.com. If you need to market your aviation services, then check out the free resources on the website. That's trainmorepilots.com. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show with me, Mick Cullen. If you're looking for more information on today's episode, or you want to leave a comment, then head over to rotarywingshow.com to be part of the conversation. You'll also be able to check out the archive on the website for previous shows. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, and please tell your helicopter buddies. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and interviewees, and don't necessarily reflect those of their employers. Join us next week for another episode of the Rotary Wing Show. Until then, fly safe.